Sin Sutta, where the um, Mahakotita is asking questions of Sariputta, the next thing he's asking is, what is the first jhana? Now, they have already discussed the uh, infinite space and infinite consciousness and the base consisting of nothingness. So now he's asking, what is first jhana? It seems to go in a sort of um, roundabout fashion. Because one would imagine that he'd first ask about the first jhana and then about the others. But um, the other three were mentioned when they were talking about mind consciousness, disjoined from the five faculties, disjoined from the faculties of the, um, the five candles. So anyway, he says, what is the first jhana? And so he gets, gets the answer, which is standard. Quite secluded from sensual desires, secluded from unprofitable dhammas, a bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the first jhana, which is accompanied by initial and sustained application with happiness and pleasure born of seclusion. This is called the first jhana. That's a standard explanation which reappears over and over again in exactly those words. And then the next question is, how many factors has the first jhana? The first jhana has five factors. Here, in a person who has entered upon the first jhana, there is the occurrence of initial application and sustained application and happiness and pleasure and unification of mind. That is how the first jhana has five factors. Now, quite secluded from sensual desires means that at the time of Entering into first jhana, obviously it's impossible to have sensual desires. And secluded from unprofitable dhammas means secluded from unprofitable mind states. So, and it is uh, accompanied by initial and sustained application with happiness and pleasure born of seclusion, seclusion from sensual desires. And the only other thing that's added in the second paragraph is unification of mind. Well, unification of mind obviously has to happen in order to become concentrated. So there are five factors in the first jhana. And then the next question is, how many factors does the first jhana abandon and how many does it possess? The first jhana abandons five factors and possesses five factors. One who has entered upon, upon the first jhana, desire for sensual pleasure is abandoned, ill will is abandoned, lethargy and drowsiness are abandoned, agitation and worry are abandoned, and uncertainty is abandoned. And there is the occurrence of initial application, sustained application, happiness and pleasure, and unification of mind. That is how the first jhana abandons five factors and possesses five factors. Well, the, these things that are being abandoned are the five hindrances. And the things that do that are the five factors of the first absorption. And they have each one of the jhana factors has one of the hindrances as the, um, that it um, works against as antidote. There's an antidote in each of the jhana factors for one of the hindrances. And um, although we haven't had any of the suttas, I believe that at the beginning I have talked about it. Um, well, most of, I guess most of you weren't, well, yes, no, half of you weren't here. <laughs> the other half were here. So um, I'll just quickly go through that because we've gone, gone through that I don't know how many times already. Um, the first jhana factor is the initial application, but that's not just the jhana factor, that's the factor of any meditation, to sit down and do it. That's the initial application to the uh, subject of the meditation, and that counteracts lethargy and drowsiness. When one is lethargic and drowsy, 
one and one sits down and actually meditates, not just sits there and thinks or, or dreams or fantasizes or, or is uh, foggy, then it does work against it. But of course it doesn't have to, just sitting with, with crossed legs means nothing. I mean, there's lots of people that sit with crossed legs and nothing happens. But if one is really, um, has the, uh, has the uh, intention and the ability to get concentrated, it does counteract lethargy and drowsiness. And lethargy in the mind is probably the worst aspect of a mind. There are other factors, all the hindrances are something that one wants to abandon, but lethargy makes it impossible to abandon any of the hindrances. So a mind which is lethargic is a mind which falls into states of non-awareness and doesn't just do that in the meditation, obviously. We do all the things in meditation that we do all day long. It's all one and the same thing. And the, it can become so bad that a person who has that kind of mind is actually in a state of well, fogginess practically all the time and doesn't really know what's going on. And then when things happen which are unpleasant, it seems to be a surprise. But actually, the person is um, creating that unpleasantness because of the lack of attention. And so lethargy is a state of mind which is, of course, um, very often sought to, to be there as an escape factor. So I don't know what's going on. We also don't know that we've got in which got dukkha. So, but it is um, the worst state of mind because one can't then do anything about the other hindrances. And because one is not aware of what one is doing, one is very surprised when things don't work and when other people become unpleasant because we don't, the person who is lethargic in the mind has no idea what they've been doing, so they think that the other person is just unpleasant, but actually something has happened from that person themselves. It's a, it's a state of being so unaware that everything that happens around one is just like, in a, it's sort of not even known or foggy. Now, if we really try, if uh, such a person then tries to meditate, that may be abandoned uh, through the meditation factor. And uh, it, it certainly helps. Now, anyone who's got a sort of a more <coughs> normal mind, which is sometimes aware and sometimes not, certainly go works against lethargy and drowsiness with the initial application. The sustained application works against what is called uncertainty here. It's very often called skeptical doubt, uncertainty. Now uncertainty goes along with a lethargic drowsy mind because a lethargic drowsy mind doesn't know where it's going, what is, what is right and what's wrong. has no idea what it should do and wonders very often why things don't seem certain why the pathway doesn't seem certain. Such a person wanders from one teacher to another, from one practice to another, from one, um, usually from one interest to another, because everything's uncertain. Well, here the uncertainty is mostly meant the uncertainty about the practice. For only when the mind becomes awake and aware do we know where we want to go? Now, some people, of course, have awakened aware minds all to start with, but there are those that have the exact opposite. And it's a very difficult um, situation to get out of because one doesn't know it. If one is full of fog, how does one know that there's fog? It's impossible. One doesn't know what's going on. Somebody else tells one that that's what's happening, one still doesn't know and think the other person is a bit funny or something. 
because one has no idea what's going on. It's like having one's head in a cloud or in a in a cloud. The head sort of um, it's very often even a feeling, a sensation in such a person. It's a sensation of the head being stuffed full of cotton wool. Not uncommon. And uh, one also creates, of course, sometimes headaches and that sort of thing, but usually stuff full of cotton wool, that's the kind of thing. And that does create uncertainty. But if such a person is able to stay on the meditation subject, in other words, sustained application on the meditation subject, and really get uh, the concentration going, that uncertainty can, to a great degree, vanish. Not completely, but to a great degree. Uncertainty is uh, compared by the Buddha with wandering around the desert in circles without any provisions and being overrun by bandits. In other words, going around and around and around in circles. The um, lethargy and drowsiness is compared to being in prison. Being imprisoned in one's own fog. It's, um, it's not so unpleasant the feeling it's um, but it's, it's it's not an unpleasant feeling for such a person to have that because it seems to be something that one can it's manageable but it takes away the possibility to be really alive with it so it's it, it's not an, um, a desirable situation so both of these, the initial application, the initial attention on the meditation subject and then the sustained attention will work against these two, being in prison and wandering around the desert in circles, which are the similes the Buddha used. And they help one to recognize what one should do as far as the meditation goes because there seems to be at least a pathway opening up. Now there's the third factor in the um, which happens after the sustained application is the, the PT, which is the pleasure, the pleasure the one which is mentioned here, and it effectively counteracts ill will. Now, if one does this every day and one has pleasurable sensations, naturally, during the time of having pleasurable sensations, there is no ill will. That's obvious. It's not possible to have both. But even though one can't uh, do the meditation all day long, the uh, practice of it does reduce the ill will. Now, ill will is not only hate. Ill will is every negative thought that one could possibly have, ever has had or will have. Anything that doesn't have positivity in it goes under the heading of ill will. It doesn't just mean uh, being angry or upset. It doesn't just mean being irritated or annoyed. It just doesn't just mean resisting and rejecting. It means everything that's negative. And because of that, it covers a wide range of emotional reactions that everybody is prone to. The Buddha compared it to a bilious disease. The one who has ill will is the one who is sick. It's not the one that we get angry at, it's the one who is angry that's, that's sick. So um, the, the, uh, the sickness is that the bile comes up and the more often one does it, the sicker one gets and the harder it is to get cured, naturally. I mean, the longer one keeps the sickness going, the harder is the, harder is the cure. It's obvious. And if we try to cure ourselves through common sense and logic, that it's no good to get angry and it's not a very nice thing to do and all the rest of it, it doesn't work. Nobody can do it. That kind of logic just doesn't work. It's got to be changed through feeling. And the change through feeling, well, while it is possible, 
is greatly facilitated through the uh, PT, which is a Pali word for the uh, pleasurable sensation in the first jhana, which is the first jhana factor that one puts one's attention on. The uh, excellent aspect of these suttas is the fact that the Buddha said these things so that one doesn't have to doubt or worry whether anybody's made this up. Um, The Buddha said it, the Buddha did it, all his disciples did it, and we can do it. Now, that's why one of the things that is necessary with the jhanas, as I've often said, every one of them, uh, none of them are unnecessary. Obviously, the first one sort of um, um, moved into the second, and the first and second together uh, have a very distinctive uh, flavor of counteracting your will, but it is actually the pleasurable sensation which has that particular quality to work against the negativity. Now, whether there are people out there who behave badly has absolutely nothing to do with it. The world's full of people that behave badly. In fact, it's chock-a-block with them. Millions and billions of them that behave badly. It's got nothing to do with our own ill will. Our own ill will is our own sickness. That's exactly what the Buddha called it, the bilious disease, the bile coming up. So if we want to get cured, naturally we have to do something in daily life about it also, but this um, third jhana factor, the third factor which is the first one of the, the first one to put one's attention on in the first jhana, is a great assistance to it. In fact, without it, um, I can't see that anybody can manage. Even with it, it's difficult enough. But without it, there's hardly any chance of reducing, even reducing one's negativities, never mind eliminating. The elimination of these negativities only come at the third pass moment, which is a non-returner. So there's quite a way to go there. But in the meantime, through that jhana meditation, it certainly gets um, less. It's not completely abandoned, of course. That it says here abandoned means during the meditation. It doesn't mean abandoned forever after, unfortunately. It would be nice if it did. And the next factor in the jhana is sukha, happiness, which arises con- in conjunction with the pleasant sensation. It can't, it's possible not to. And that counteracts very effectively restlessness and worry what is it here? Agitation and worry it's here. Well that's a nice one too. Agitation actually maybe better than restlessness. Agitation and worry. The agitated mind, the mind that's looking for this and that, the mind that now that's sort of the opposite of the lethargic and drowsy mind. The lethargic and drowsy mind doesn't do very much at all. It um, falls into itself, and it has a be- the person usually has a very strange behavior pattern. One usually wonders why the person behaves like that. Uh, the lethargic and drowsy mind is a strange behavior pattern. But the agitated mind is just as strange. They both behave strangely. And the agitated person behaves in a manner which is... Um, one could say like like the birds that are searching for their food. Well, they're certainly agitated. They are constantly on the move. Now, a person who's got an agitated mind, one could say, is constantly on the move. And not necessarily going from here to China, but even in, in one place being constantly on the move. No sitting still, no being still. Whereas the other one, the lethargic and drowsy mind, is not moving. It's um, almost as if such a person has 
has taken a sleeping pill and not quite taken shaken the effects off. Whereas the agitated one and the worried one is as m- almost as taking one of those, what are those things called that the truck drivers take? Speed, that's it, a speed pill. So one looks as if they've taken a sleeping pill and the other one looks as if they're taking a speed pill. <laughs> so they both look a bit strange. But, um, which, and so these, um, the agitation worry is of course uh, caused by the fact that one hasn't got what one wants. Well, nobody has what they want. But the person that has agitation and worry hasn't had ever looked inside to see why they're so agitated and why they're so worried. And the same with the other one, with the lethargic one, they haven't looked inside either, they just are. But <coughs> when the happiness arises in the meditation, in the jhana factor, which is one of the, even in the first jhana, it does arise, for that time, there is nothing to worry about. I mean, if we start worrying, we can't have jhanas, it's obviously obvious. And if we get agitated, we also can't have uh, jhanas. So when we have this happiness in the jhana, it's impossible to be agitated because we've got what we want. So the mind settles down. Now, the same with the one that's already settled down in that lethargy, of course. They need to get a bit of that (coughs) of the um, uh, pleasurable sensation in order to wake up. But the other one needs to settle down. So each one is well served in, in, in with all these uh, factors. Agitation and worry are uh, con- compared by the Buddha to being a slave. They push us around. They push us from here to there. And uh, one doesn't even know that one is going from here to there because one has to listen to their... Uh, commands they command one to do this thing excuse me (coughs) and then the last one is that unification of mind, one-pointedness, another word for it, the same thing, and uh, ekagata. And the, um, that effectively counteracts sensual desire. Now, obviously, one, can't, one can only get into the jhanas if one has, for the time being, abandoned sensual desire. Anything that one wants or wants to get rid of. But, because of the one-pointedness of mind, which has to remain during that meditation, the uh, sensual desires are effectively kept out. So they are abandoned for the time being. I wonder if it talks about the second journal. Just a minute. Yes, yes. I don't want to go ahead, get ahead of this if they're talking about the second from the deliverance of mind. Fourth journey. Hmm. Okay, don't talk about second. All right. Um, now, sensual desire in a person who doesn't have any jhana uh, uh, meditation appears to be the only way to have any pleasure in the world. Sensual gratification. Now, the sensual gratification can come through any of our five senses or through the thinking. Now, some people think and some make pictures. Some have their own inbuilt television set. It's um, uh, quite an effective way of having essential gratification because it's cheap, doesn't cost anything, nobody knows anything about it, it doesn't seem to have any effects. But it does. 
it takes the mind out of the ability to be mindful and attentive. So it doesn't ever have a chance to see the, uh, the reality. Now, sensual desire before doing the jhanas is our only, apparently our only way of having some uh, way of getting some happiness. But as we are able then to see that in the jhanas we don't need any sensual desire, that's totally uh, unnecessary, that we can have absolute joy much more than any kind of pleasure we can ever get out there in the world, then sensual desire no longer plays such an enormous part in one's life. And one can actually let go of quite a number of them. It doesn't mean that one has to live like an live an ascetic life immediately or anything like that but it means that the essential pleasures that are available to us are no longer important they're there but they're not important and when they don't have an importance they don't ever have an addiction and that's the main thing if they are not important they're not addictive they are um, happening Sometimes the sensual pleasures are happening. It's very hard to avoid at times. But because they have not, haven't got the importance, they also don't have the uh, person searching for them. And if one doesn't search for them, then one can release one's time and energy for much more important things. In fact, one has time for lots of things. And it's sometimes quite amazing what people who do not have all these problems with their sensual desires can actually accomplish in a, in a, in a day, in a week, in a year, in a lifetime. The accomplishment of people is very much concerned with um, mental discipline. The less discipline there is, the less one accomplishes. So the fourth, no, the fifth one, the fifth factor of the jhanas, the one-pointedness, the unification of mind, which is a necessary factor of all the jhanas, not just the first one, um, counteracts essential desire effectively. The Buddha compared essential desire to being in debt. One has to renew all the time. In other words, one has to pay off with interest and one has to keep on paying again and again. So it's not just paid off once, one has to renew the payment. Just like when one has a big debt, big mortgage at the bank, one has to go every month and keep paying. And usually the interest payment is bigger than the payment that one pays back on the capital. It's the same with central desire. No difference. Sensual desires take many, many different forms, and some of them are not even understood to be sensual desires. Anything that doesn't have clarity of understanding of anicca dukkha nata in it is being used in order to cover those three up, whatever it is what one uses. It doesn't have to be drugs or alcohol. It can be just our activities in body or mind. It doesn't matter. Even scholars who immerse themselves in the most difficult translations of uh, uh, obscure Sanskrit uh, um, manuscripts are just trying to not see what there really is. And then, of course, much of the easier ways of doing it doesn't have to be quite that difficult. Anything will do. Newspapers will do. 
I know people, in fact I know somebody very well who reads about eight or nine newspapers every day from, one, from beginning to end. So there's nothing left, no time left to do anything else. So these are the five factors huh, of the first jhana and they counteract the five hindrances. Now, they obviously only counteract the five hindrances during the jhana. But, one has to have enough intelligence to put two and two together. If one doesn't do that, the whole thing isn't going to work. It's still going to be an escape mechanism. Uh, This is, of course, uh, all living beings' um, main search to find an escape mechanism which will finally work. They don't. None of them do. There is no escape mechanism to that will finally work that one can have oneself. There's just no such thing. But then the jhanas can become an escape mechanism. You know, isn't it nice? I feel good. But then one has to go again and do it, and again and do it, and again and do it, and then one has an addiction. And when it's an addiction, it's also useless because that, again, takes away the clarity of knowing what one is doing. They are means to an end. They certainly are not an end in themselves. So, if one is able to practice at least the first jhana, one has already the ability to see and put two and two together that during that time one feels very well well, at least that much. And that during that time, those five factors of the five hindrances are submerged. So maybe that will put two and two together to say, okay, I've got to do something about those five hindrances all the time. Not only hope for that uh, hour or two hours, three hours, whatever, during the day when I can uh, escape from all my problems, and sit there and actually concentrate because it's not that difficult to concentrate to get into the first jhana as you all know because I mean I have never yet met anybody who can't do it but to get rid of the five hindrances I haven't met anybody yet who did it (laughs) so the first jhana is nothing but the five hindrances that's something that's really something. And that's the main thing. And there one has to put two and two together and see, okay, in the first jhana, while I'm in it, I don't have them. They're abandoned during that time. So now what, what do I do about myself so that I will also work at least against them or work to, with them, all my friends that these five hindrances do not reappear so that I can do something about them. But one needs a clear mind for that. One needs a clear and alert mind. One has to be right there. Otherwise it doesn't work. One doesn't even know they're coming up. Most people have no idea when their sensual desires come up. They do know when they get angry. That most people do know when they get angry. But then of course they justify it because the other person is such a horrible creature that one has to get angry. Lethargy and drowsiness is hard to be, become aware of because the person who is lethargic just, just is. And the agitated and worried one is also difficult. Very difficult to know the agitation and the worry. But the person who can do the first jhana at least knows the difference, hopefully, between their ordinary state of mind and the state of mind in the first jhana. And knowing that difference between the ordinary mind and the mind in first jhana may give him enough incentive to do something about it. And if it does, then the first jhana has done its purpose. To give enough incentive to do something about oneself when one isn't in the first jhana. So, any questions about that? Because now comes something entirely different again. It's a very strange sutta. It talks about all different things uh, within one page. But right view on this page and first jhana on this page. Anyway, this is the end of the first jhana. Any questions on this? This is what I have. Isn't the uh, the, the, the beating that you came on the first jhana, isn't he regarded as sensual? 
sensual no it's a sensation it's not created by sensual desire it's created by concentration it's a sensation sensual desire is um kamaraga it's actually the pali word is our english word of raging raga that sensual desire if you have sensual desire you want to get something but in the concentration you got to get rid of everything it's the exact opposite yeah and you won't get it you're certainly not going to be successful if you have a desire for it it's a it may not it it's a craving yes yeah. but sensual desire is a desire for gratification of any of the five senses you know which one of the five senses are you going to gratify with the first jhana it's a craving certainly and it's a craving if they don't get anything all you get is dukkha that's exactly what you get from craving <laughs> you know the, if you sit there for instance and you don't get the first jhana and you want it well we're going to have dukkha no it's the, the 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 word sensual desire is not the same word as the word craving in pali it's a totally different word and certainly craving is there but craving is underlying all of it craving is a craving to be and the craving for and craving not to be that's underlying everything our cravings craving for sensual gratification but the sensual desire is a specific thing to gratify one of the senses we don't gratify seeing hearing tasting touching smelling not even thinking is being gratified you got to get rid of the whole thing in order to have concentration and what you get is a nice reward for getting having got rid of the sensual desire so one gets a very nice reward which should tell one already that the sensual desire isn't really the thing to have and yet when one is outside in the world it may you know, reappear quite markedly yes that comes from the illusion that there is somebody there to be where does that crime come from from the craving <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> The Buddhist uh, the explanation is it starts with avijja ignorance. We don't know, we are ignorant of the fact that we're not. We think we are, and that that's where the craving comes from. And then the craving is comes from that idea. It goes around in circles. One can break through. It's possible. Not easy. Difficult situation, but never mind. The easy things is uh, they don't bring results anyway. It's only the difficult ones that bring results. And that's a very good thing also to investigate in meditation. You know, where does all this business come from? And I'm thinking I am. Where does it emanate from? Very interesting to find out. I think there's some some uh, mention about this here somewhere. No, it well, there's a <laughs> what I just told you. Uh, the um, uh, that what did you say? You said where does that craving to be come from? Comes from our delusion, and our delusion comes from our craving to be. Here, this uh, monk says, um, a lifespan persists depending on what. Lifespan persists depending on heat. Heat persists depending on what. Heat persists depending on lifespan. <laughs> He gives exactly the same kind of answer. <laughs> Goes around in circles. <laughs> But that's the way it is. I mean, it's not not to be supposed to be funny. I mean, it just happens to be funny because it's the same kind of answer. But that's exactly the way it is. You see, the craving comes from the delusion. The delusion comes from the craving. <laughs> so if we get rid of the craving, we can see the whole thing. Not easy to do.
and particularly because our mind is so so has uh, is so um, um, convoluted, it doesn't cut right through. It's, minds are convoluted; they have all sorts of ideas everywhere. That's how we manage to invent so many things because we have such convoluted minds. I mean, in some ways, it's quite a good thing because it's nice to invent things. But, uh, you know, a straightforward mind wouldn't invent all these different things, you know, washing machines and computers and toasters and, and, and <laughs> rockets and uh, all these things that we've invented. <laughs> so, what else? Anything else about the first channel? Anything new? If you do believe that you... Well, you've had enough practice to know exactly what to do with it. it it's, a, it's a matter of uh, time and uh, uh, continuing, continual practice in the same direction. It's like a homing pigeon that knows exactly where to go and eventually the mind knows where to go and then everything is quite clear what happens is you feel relieved you know because until then you'd had to look after yourself and look after you know to be see that you got all the things that you ought to have and all the respect and the devotion and the love and the appreciation and the uh, praise and the money and the and everything that you ought to have, that you get it. And then if you're not there, then what do you care? It doesn't matter whether you get it or not. It doesn't matter at all anymore. You, know, you don't need to get uh, the money, nor do you need to get the job, nor do you need to get the appreciation or the praise or the... Uh, the nothing. You know, so it's a great relief. But you can't do it by thinking about it. And you can't do it by by talking about it. It's a matter of long-term practice. I have never yet met anybody who does it overnight. But maybe there are such people. I don't know. I just haven't met them. It's long-term practice usually. And it's, uh, it's also due to meditation. And the med- meditation has to become established to the point where it can become due to it. You know. But when it happens, it's very nice. Much nicer to deal with the world when you aren't there, you see. Because the world can't do anything to you. You're not there anyway. And yet you can walk around and look at the birds and everything. And you can still see and Hear and taste and touch, everything's fine. So, shall we start on something new or anything else? Something about the five faculties. Well, okay, I'll read it out. There are these five faculties, each with a separate field, a separate resort, no, no one of them exploiting for its being another field and resort. That is to say, the eye faculty, ear, nose, tongue, and body faculties. Now, these five faculties, each with a separate field, a separate resort, no one of them exploiting for its being another's field and resort, what is their homing place? What exploits for its being their fields and resorts? Well, It's actually a very simple question, as you'll see with the answer. It's just worded so difficult. I don't know why. I mean, Nana Moli was an Englishman. I don't know why he made it so difficult. But probably this is the way it sounds in Pali. And uh, what happens, of course, is over the course of time, language has changed tremendously. But Pali didn't because it's not a spoken language. So it just remains sort of uh, static the way it once was. Now this is a question. Now the answer is, these five faculties, each with a separate field, a separate resort, no one of them exploiting for its being another field and resort, that is to say, eye, ear, nose, tongue and body. Now these five faculties, 
have mind as their homing place, mind exploits for its being their fields and resorts. <laughs> what is being said here is that um, each of our uh, sense faculties has its own um, way of contacting. Now the eye can't hear and the ear can't see and the, the tongue can't smell and the nose can't taste. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? That's all it says. It has its own field and own resort and doesn't exploit anything uh, for its being any another's field and resort. It has its own uh, uh, contacting business. So then, the question is, what is their homing place? What exploits for its being these their fields and resorts? Now, the answer is the mind. They they come home to the mind and the mind in order to exist has to use in order to not exist in order to um, work has to use whatever the sense contact brought in exploits in other words the sense contact field in order to have any sort of working arrangement now, all this means is that the ear only hears sound. It doesn't know that that's a bird or a, or a truck or a, or a car or a, a washing machine. It hasn't got a clue. Form and color. It doesn't have a clue whether it's a girl or a boy or a rose or a um, chrysanthemum or whether it's ugly or beautiful, it doesn't know anything, the eyes. It just sees the shape and the color, that's all. And the body just knows touch, that's all. It doesn't know painful, it doesn't know pleasant, it doesn't know anything. It just knows touch. And when the, the um, nose, it smells, but it doesn't know that it's a incense or that something is burning out there or that there's a you know fire or anything like that because it smells that it's just nothing it just smells it's a mind that knows ah fire got to run or this is incense very nice you know, must be meditating or something like that it's only the mind only the mind knows these things so what is being said here that is that which it's being said in many sutras and in this one just in a different way of expressing a little more difficult of expression that's all is that we have these five sense faculties and are depending on them all the time and yet it's constantly only the mind that is doing all this the mind that is explaining them now for instance one could in an emergency, an emergency being meaning emergency meaning before one gets angry, just hear sound instead of all the words that are being said, because it's only the mind that makes up the words. The ear can't hear any words at all; it just hears sound. So before one gets angry, which is an emergency. One just hears sound, that's all. Sound only. And with that, the, um, there's no way to get angry. But, of course, the mind is not, uh, not trained like that, so it's always reacting, constantly reacting. It hears something and doesn't like it, or it likes it, and all this sort of thing. So that's all what is being said, with all these difficult words. All that's being said is that the mind does all the business with the senses. So then, next one is about this lifespan with the heat. We'll do that tomorrow. The strange suttas, but all so many things in it. So, any questions on that? Anything at all? Anything? Quite clear, huh? So if we hear something in the future that we don't like, we just do sound only. Huh? Not easy to do.
have to practice this in meditation. Unfortunately, it's very quiet here. Can't practice it. Is it actually helpful? I mean, if you hear a bird whilst meditating, and um, to pre- prevent distraction from the, by, the, by that sound, just to attempt to think of it as just a, a sound, when it's finished, it's the end of the sound. Hmm. Once you start thinking of it as a sound, you're, you're already lost. Mm. You've gone one step too far. Because the mind says, oh, I'm not supposed to say that's a bird, I'm supposed to say that sound. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's, gone, it's gone too far already. What it actually is, it's a vibration, as you well know. Sounds are vibrations, just as light's vibration. And you can take the sound into yourself as a vibration. And then it's just sound. And the mind does not get into the act. Not at all. It doesn't say sound only, sound only, sound only. Because that is also thinking. Sure, but, but, but uh, does it start off that way? Saying sound only, sound only, eventually... Well, yes, it might, it might, it uh, might, you know, sort of uh, work on that. Uh, but uh, that's only a direction one gives one's mind. Saying, ah, yes, sound only, that's right, sound only. You know? Meanwhile, you know already that it's a bird, and you know already that it's one of the rosellas, and you know already that it's screeching, and, and you know the whole thing while you're saying sound only. But the, the, the actual um, truth of the, of the practice is that you take the sound as a vibration, and then there's nothing, absolutely nothing. You can meditate under any circumstance. Well, no, that's exaggerated. As much as the mind is trained. The Buddha meditated under any circumstance. There's a sutta where he was sitting by a river, meditating. And when he came out of the meditation, uh, a wanderer, another ascetic, had sat down near him. And uh, when he came out, this wanderer said... um, I was meditating one time and there was thunder and lightning and uh, this thunder and lightning I was so absorbed I didn't hear it and uh, so the Buddha said well um, what are what are those uh, 500 ox carts doing on the other side of the river and so this wanderer said oh well they've just gone through the river here and the Buddha said well I didn't hear that and if you've ever been in Asia, you know what an ox cart sounds like. One ox cart. Unbelievable. Because they have wooden wheels and no oil. And so they, and they've gone through the river with 500 oxen on them. So he said, you know, he had been sitting there and he didn't hear that. So, um, there is a, a concentration where the sound is really cut out. But uh, I don't quite think that we can make that. But anyway, with a bird it's possible. With anything like that which isn't so obnoxious, it is quite possible to just have the vibration. It's not difficult. Yeah, next time you hear a sound. Yes. The first time you'll be taken by surprise because, you know, the mind is so quick um, it will say something. But then, if that sound maybe comes again, a similar one, the easiest one to start with would be the wind in the leaves of the trees. It's pleasant, and it has a vibration to it by nature, because it's moving. So that's an easy one to start with. Set yourself under a tree, and see to get the vibration instead of, ah, the leaves are rustling. Mm-hmm. So it's one, one instead of the other, yes? Oh, it seems like a strange thing, you know, I found um, anybody else now. Sometimes when the mind wanders off in, in meditation subject, a sound, a small sound, can actually jerk you back into yes. <laughs> onto the subject again. Yes, well, the, because the mind has become lethargic. 
and then it remembers what it was supposed to be doing and then it gets back to it yes. yes well sometimes even an, a, a thought can be helpful you know if uh, the mind gets lethargic and just goes like that and then a thought comes which might even be something interesting that you want to hang on to and as the interest wanes the mind has got together again we call the mind a magician it can pull a rabbit out of any hat it can do anything it can even become enlightened <laughs> yes but it is worthwhile to practice this sound only and it is the uh, one of the things that are, is conducive towards that is the um, uh, sound of the leaves in the, when the wind goes through them because that is a pleasant one and it's not so difficult and then one can do it with something else all. but if one is taken by surprise the mind usually can't do it mm. Mm. but uh, when one practices maybe even that can be done Anything else? Uh, especially conducive after jhana to concentrate on the vibration of the sound. Yeah, sometimes even when you're in the jhana and the sound pr- brings you out of it, you can use it. But in order to practice that, yes, after jhana it's easier. Then because the mind is already unified. Anything else? Please put the attention on the breath for a few moments. Think of your heart and mind as a beautiful garden which contains the seed of enlightenment. Think of yourself as watering and nourishing that seed and removing all the obstacles for its growth. Love that seed. Care for it. Be concerned with it. Give it your best attention knowing that it contains the greatest jewel think of someone you don't like and see the seed of enlightenment in that person also and love the seed and the person who's carrying it And now think of someone 
whom you feel quite indifferent to it. Don't care about that person at all. Neither like nor dislike. And think of the seed of enlightenment being carried in that person's heart and mind. Just like in your own. And love him or her. as having that seed being the one who can nourish it Now think of the people that you are in contact with in your daily life. Either every day or very often. Each one of them carrying the seed of enlightenment within. Give each person your love and your care and your consideration as the one who carries that great jewel within. Now think of your own family, each one carrying the seed of enlightenment in their heart and mind. Appreciate them for that. Give them your love and consideration as a being carrying that great jewel within. Think of all your close friends, all having that same jewel in their heart. Give them your love and your friendship. Knowing of that wonderful jewel that they carry in their hearts.
and put your attention on yourself and see if you can find that beautiful jewel of utmost clarity and brilliance shining and sparkling translucent completely pure find it in your heart let everything else drop away let just the jewel be there and let its brilliance sparkle far and wide bringing great joy to people let the jewel grow so that it can sparkle further that its beauty and its translucence and its purity can be seen far away let it grow ever more larger and larger maybe as big as the universe Now put your attention back on yourself and feel the power and the clarity and the beauty and the warmth of that great jewel within your own heart. beings nourish the seed of enlightenment 